Welcome once again to our study in Paul's epistle to the Philippians. We actually finished the text last week, uh, chapter 4, verses 20 through 23. But tonight what we're doing is kind of a wrap-up of the whole epistle and just taking uh, little pieces out of it and making application, reminding ourselves of what we are uh, uh, learning and what how we should apply it to our lives. Okay, so let's begin with prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for the privilege we've had in these past weeks to uh, be together and to study your word this way. Lord, I pray for each one and those who maybe are not uh, attending with us in the live class but would uh, read the commentary and uh, listen to the teachings afterwards. Lord, we just pray that your word would have its due effect in all of our lives and that we would learn to know what it means, but also having come to understand what your word says, that we would apply it to our lives and our individual uh, situations and locations and so forth and so on. Lord, we know that your word abounds with wisdom, and you have said that your word is applicable to our lives as we seek to walk in the footsteps of our Messiah Yeshua. So we thank you so much for giving us your word. We believe with full faith that it is inspired by your Ruach HaKodesh. Holy Spirit, we bless you and thank you for your work in us and for us and Yeshua, all that you have done and do for us. Heavenly Father, we bless you and thank you for your love to us and drawing us unto yourself that we would have eternal life with you. So we bless you for all these things. And we thank you for this time together. In Yeshua's name, amen. Okay, normally our habit has been, our custom has been to read the chapter that we're uh, studying. But tonight we're going to look at life applications from Philippians. And uh, as we complete the commentary on Paul's epistle to the Philippians, it is very important that we consider some of the obvious life applications that are pressed upon us as we seek to live out the truths Paul has given us in this inspired text. Now, obviously, I'm not giving you all of them. I'm just picking some. I'm just picking a few here and there, but I'm trying to pick some from uh, each chapter. And uh, we'll have some time for uh, questions and so forth uh, towards the end. Okay. So the first thing that I want to see in the very opening verse of uh, Philippians which reads, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Messiah Yeshua, to all the saints in Messiah Yeshua who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Now, I don't make any mention in this application on the word saints, but obviously it means holy ones, and all who are in the Messiah are reckoned by the Father as righteous in his sight. So we're not using the word saint here in the NASB or any of the other translations, to be a different class of believers. All who are true believers are saints. But here's the thing that catches my eye uh, and heart. Why does he begin by including Timothy? Obviously, Paul is the one writing this. But I'm struck again with the fact that he opens this up. uh, He includes Timothy in the first verse, but... Later on, in chapter 2, verses 25 through 26, we see that he also lists Epaphroditus, who has been a worker with him. So, I think this indicates an apostolic pattern of leadership within a local assembly, or an ecclesia, as well as offering a clear biblical example that those sent out to evangelize and make disciples should never go by oneself. Paul didn't go by himself. There were always those that were with him. So what has become so commonplace in our day that churches everywhere, you know, a husband and a wife will, uh, or maybe even just single uh, people who are are in the church are saying, we feel that the Lord wants us to go to this land or to this country or someplace, and they get the money together and they send them. But there's nothing in the apostolic scriptures that would give that pattern There's always at least two leaders, two men who are going to take the responsibility of teaching and discipling and so forth. It doesn't mean that their wives, if they have them, 
are are not also doing a good work. But in the way that God set things up in the apostolic scriptures, leadership within the local community or in a, someone who goes to begin a community or help them help the people come to faith and join them together in a community, the leadership, that is the deacons and the overseers, well, the overseers particularly, deacons, are, we see that there can be both women and men in deaconesses, but um, the overseers are always men. God put the weight of responsibility upon the shoulders of men to carry the leadership in the local community. So, there's no indication whatsoever in the apostolic scriptures, and we see it here again in the opening of our uh, epistle here in Philippians, that Paul recognizes that he and Timothy are sending this letter, but he also says he addresses it to what? The overseers and deacons in the Philippian community. It's not just one pastor. There are overseers, elders, however you want to say, and shepherds, sometimes the text would use that term, which is uh, what pastor means. So, But it was always in a plurality. I believe that the current Christian church would be greatly enhanced if those that are led by a single pastor would actually have the pastor together with others that are working together as a team. The second thing that I've noticed uh, that I'm pointing out is in chapter 1, verse 6. And it reads, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it or bring it to completion until the day of Messiah Yeshua. Just a couple of highlights that I want to mention here. Our salvation in Yeshua is something that began with God drawing us to himself, apart from which we would have never sought him. It is God who begins that good work in us oftentimes before we even recognize it. Now, some of us had that work begun when we were children because we were brought up in Christian homes. Uh, my father was a pastor. My mother was very active, obviously. Uh, and we read the Bible every morning and uh, would talk about it and so forth. So I grew up under that, and Paulette did too, my wife. But not everyone has that privilege Yet it is God that begins that work. He who began a good work in you is what Paul says. So we need to be uh, cognizant of that, that when we go out, when we give the gospel to our friends, to our family, to whomever, our workmates, we can trust that God will draw unto himself those that will receive him and will have eternal life. And if that weren't the case we'd all just be trying to sell the gospel, but that's not how it's given in the scriptures. The gospel is the power of God that results in salvation to everyone who believes. Secondly, one who is truly born again by the power of the Spirit and given the gift of saving faith will inevitably persevere in becoming more and more conformed to the image of Yeshua for the work of salvation that God begins, he will surely finish. He who begins a good work will complete it. And that's what it means. Will perfect it. Bring it to perfection and a completion with a view to the coming of Messiah Yeshua. And that's what Paul means here by until or with a, a view to the day of Messiah Yeshua. Here again is a verse at the very beginning of Paul that totally negates those who believe that people can be at one point truly saved and at another point in their life, lose their salvation. No. Salvation is not a work that we do. Salvation is something that God brings to us, gives us the desire and will to receive it, and then he does that ongoing work in our hearts. And we could call that work, of course, the work of uh, sanctification, becoming more and more what God intends us to be. All right, the next uh, verses that I've chosen are verses 9 and 10 in chapter 1 and I've t entitled it Faith and Love are Strengthened by the Knowledge of God's Truth Paul wrote, And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment 
in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Messiah. So genuine love for God and for each other is strengthened by knowing and making practical life applications of the scriptures, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and discernment. How is it that we grow in our understanding of who God is, who we are, what he intends, and so forth? It's through the life application of scriptures. We don't just read it. We seek to know, how does this apply to me? And that's hopefully what we're doing in this final session uh, on our uh, epistle of Philippians. Well, this means that true believers in Yeshua will inevitably have a hunger to know God's word and to live it out in all areas of their lives. Now, I grant there are some that maybe grow up in an environment where the Bible is only read you know, every so often, and, and there's the if they're going to church, the service is more singing and the, maybe the pastor giving a few illustrations or something like that. But there has to be a digging in of the scriptures and bringing it to our life, our, our thoughts, if we're going to grow and mature in our faith as God intends. All right, then I've gone to verses 12 through 14. Uh, in the first chapter. And what I see in this is Paul is an example of how maturing faith enables the believer to persevere and even to rejoice in difficult times or circumstances. He writes, My circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Messiah has become well known. The brethren speak the word of God without fear. Now, isn't that an amazing thing? Do we think that, how is it possible that Paul could have been drugged into prison, totally innocent of what they accuse him of, and yet he says that this has been for the cause of the Messiah, and it's good. Well, what do we learn from this? If we learn this lesson from Paul, we learn that a growing faith enables the believer to endure life's difficulties and also offers an example to others so that they are strengthened to be bold witnesses for Yeshua. Why would Paul tell us that? He wants us to see that anyone who has the Spirit of God dwelling within him or her who has come to genuine faith and this faith has matured, is able to face any circumstance in life in a way that honors and pleases God. Then I go to verse 20 of chapter 1. Paul is an example of faith which all believers should seek to follow. This is verse 20 of chapter 1. According to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything but that with all boldness Messiah will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Here again we have an excellent example that Paul gives to us of himself. What was his primary goal in life? That he would honor the Lord who had saved him and would do it with boldness. He says that the Messiah would be exalted in his body, whether in life or in death. He didn't know what was going to come in the next days as he was there in prison. He may have faced execution. And yet he has this strong faith. Oh, how can we have such strong faith? It is not by being satisfied with where we are in our walk of faith, in our understanding and application of the Scriptures. Now, there may be some who are very mature in that way, but we still, all of us, seek and want to know the Scriptures in their fullness. We want to see how they're applied in our daily life. And we want to be the kind of follower of Yeshua that has His Word resonating in our thoughts and therefore enabling us to have action and life principles that honor Him, that help others, then ultimately glorify our Savior. So I write, as we seek to grow stronger in our faith in Yeshua, 
we should follow Paul's example, namely, that even in the most difficult times of life, we should still have as our goal that Yeshua should be exalted. Here once again, we see Paul emphasizes soli deo gloria, that is, all of life lived out to the glory of God. I'm convinced that this is one doctrine that is throughout the scriptures that needs to be emphasized more and more. In a time in our modern world, there's a lot of uh, issues that stand against us. And we need to be bold and we need to be strong. And the only way that we can do that is by taking advantage of what is normally referred to as the means of grace. That is prayer. That is uh, study and and, uh, understanding and applying the scriptures, studying it and applying the scriptures, knowing the scriptures. And then finally, the what has been called the communion of the believers being together with others for when we're together with others who are of like faith we are able to encourage one another even in times of difficulty now i go to chapter two paul's inspired words emphasize the high importance of striving for unity within the local assembly of believers And this is chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Messiah, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Well, when he says, if there is any encouragement in Messiah, of course, we studied this some time ago, but it literally means... Surely there is great encouragement in Messiah. So even if you can't list everything that is an encouragement, you know that there is plenty there. So what must we do? We must read his words. We must read those who were with him and their inspired words. And we must strive to have the same mind in terms of the essential aspects of our faith. And we must maintain the same love. What is love? Love is giving, not always seeking just to be given to, but to help the other. What does it mean to be united in spirit? It means to be able to love one another even in our differences. Now, I know there are always going to be some that have closer friends than others, but it doesn't mean that the others who are not closer friends aren't equally united in spirit. But here's the the real important one, intent on one purpose. What is that one purpose? It's to please our Savior Yeshua in our private life, in our family life, and in our community life, at work, during entertainment, all that we do to do it as unto the Lord. So we must understand that God, through the inspired words of Paul, intends us to strive earnestly for unity within the local assembly of believers. Now, he doesn't mean that we have to be have the same unity with every other congregation. That's impossible. Our unity comes by being together. And when we're together, we help one another. And that enhances our unity. And here's the question. Do we consider this something that is of great importance to God and thus ought also to be so for all who are truly his? the unity of the faith with people that we regularly meet with. We know them by name. We know them in their family setting. We know some of the difficulties they're facing. We have opportunity to pray for them and with them. And we praise the Lord together when we worship together. That is so important and so vital. And I have the real sense that in our modern world it's being diminished in terms of its value. People are saying, well, you know, you know, I used to go to church, but you know, I just stay at home and read my Bible and everything's okay. But the scriptures are clear, right? The book of Hebrews says, don't neglect the assembling of yourselves together. Now, some of you may live in a place where there aren't any communities of like faith. Okay, I understand that. 
then we have the opportunity to meet online like we're doing now. But that ought to be something that we seek to use to its fullest if that's all we have. And perhaps the Lord has given this ability to us because there are uh, very few uh, evangelical communities that would also agree to matters of the Torah. And I, I'm nervous about that because I think that people ought to be with other believers as much as possible, helping one another, caring for each other, praying for each other, praising the Lord together, and in that way glorifying him. We come to verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2. And here's the issue that I want to focus on. Paul gives us the primary issues that bring divisions within believing communities and what combats division and enables unity. We read in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. I know it's it's true for all of us. There are times when we're oh, tired, you know, maybe I'll just stay home today and so forth and so on. Well, okay, there are some times where that's necessary. But do we really put the needs of others before our own? Isn't that what love really is? Love is putting my own desires as secondary and the one I'm loving as primary. What is selfishness? He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Well, selfishness is what I want for myself, even if it is at the expense of others. What I want is more important than what you want. Basically, selfishness is a lack of genuine God kind of love. When he says that we're to love one another, he means that we're to put our immediate need as secondary and the need of the person that I see as primary. What is empty conceit? Those who consider themselves to be greater than others, but in reality they have grave issues about which they are unwilling to admit. It's somebody who just walks around as though they've got it all together, but when someone comes to really search in their lives, they realize there's real problems. What is humility of mind? This is the solution to overcoming divisions. That is, for each person to regard one another as more important than oneself. Humility means this person has a need and I have the opportunity to help them. Then you might say, yeah, but that person, you know, he's hard to get along with or I don't like the way she talks or (laughs) I don't know. We can come up with a list of things. Humility says, no, that's not important. What's more important is to help them. Such humility of mind is demonstrated when we genuinely seek to encourage and help one another. As believers in Yeshua, we are not only to look after our own needs and give our life energies to those things that pertain only to ourselves, but we are also to help others with their needs and also encourage them in their service to the Lord as important members of the body of Messiah. Many times people, there are people who seem to think that, well, I don't really have anything to contribute. But when we come alongside of them and encourage them, they discover that there is something they can do for the Lord and for others. And that opens up a growing aspect of their faith. That's why it's so important. Now in chapter 2, verse 5, Paul exhorts us regarding the primary key to unity within the local assembly of believers, which is for each one to become more and more like Yeshua. Have this attitude, which is really kind of, as we might say in modern English, mindset. Have this mindset in yourselves, which was also in Messiah Yeshua. Now, this section of chapter 2 has been properly described as the hymn of Christ, is the normal way. We could say hymn of Messiah, but hymn of Christ. For in it Paul extols the very essence of Yeshua as the victorious Messiah and Savior of his people, and therefore the one whom every believer should strive to emulate. 
I know we've grown up with this phrase, what would Yeshua do? That's a good phrase to have in mind. But do we know enough of what he would do to answer that question? That only comes from studying him in the scriptures. The scriptures teach us what he is like, how he thinks, how he responds. The joy that he had that was set before him was what? It was all whom he would redeem. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despised the shame. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Messiah. Thus, to be like Messiah means that those who are truly his ought to make it their goal to emulate him in all aspects of one's life and relationships with others. I know that's a growing process. None of us are perfect with that. Many times we have to kind of have a self-rebuke. We say, oh, I shouldn't have said that. Oh, I should, have, I should have helped in this way. I should have helped in that way. But the more that we know what God wants us to do, the more we will be enabled to do it as we rely upon his strength to do what maybe is not so normal for us to do. Sometimes people are difficult to love. And because they're, they've gone through a lot of different things. So what do we do? Just say, well, we'll let somebody else do it. Well, that's possible too. But we don't give up. We want to be like Messiah and to emulate him in our relationship with others. And then Yeshua is the ultimate example of what it means to love others by serving them and seeking their best, for he gave his own life to redeem eternally all of those whom the Father had given to him. We read in John 6.37, All that the Father has given me will come to me, and those who come to me I will never send away or cast away. These are the expressions Paul uses to define the attitude for which every believer should strive, for they are fully expressed in the life and work of Messiah himself. He says there should be encouragement in Messiah. How do we encourage others in Messiah? Sometimes when we encourage people, they think we're rebuking them. We have to be wise and careful. We can ask questions. You know, how are you doing? Uh, we missed you last week. I uh, didn't see you there. Uh, is everything okay? But we can do that even better if we've made some kind of acquaintance and friendship with a person. Paul talks about the consolation of love. There's something about showing clear caring for someone that opens them up to listen. When we have no relationship with someone that we meet regularly, but we never talk, we don't, whatever, that's difficult then, isn't it? And what Paul wants is for us to find those relationships by which when someone knows that they are cared for, they will uh, be ready to listen. What is the fellowship of the Spirit? It means that the Spirit of God unites people together within a common community. And if we yield to the Spirit, He will unite us so that we can truly bear each other's burdens, help one another, encourage one another, and learn from one another. And then he says, the expression of affection and compassion. That means we really have to care for someone. Not just be concerned about, well, they're doing the same old thing. Okay, but maybe maybe there's someone that can come alongside of them and help them. And maybe that someone is you. Affection and compassion. I think it is true that when a person has gone through uh, a very difficult experience and have been able to gain uh, victory over the problems, they have a greater compassion for those who have similar situations. But are we not all, in one way, equal in terms of we are born-again sinners? We are those who have been brought by God into his family. We have that unity. We have that oneness. And we must use that to help one another, to care for each other, to pray for each other, and to help build each other up in the faith. 
Now, chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. Paul extols the mystery of the Incarnation by equally affirming both his eternal, divine nature as well as his true human nature. Of course, this is something that has been a problem ever since the first early centuries, um, that there are those who say, no, if, if Yeshua is truly divine, then there's more than one God. Well, that's what I like to tell people is the Greek mindset. The, uh, the old Greek mindset is that if you can't work it out in a mathematical equation, it can't be true. Of course, there's very much in the creation that we see that we, even the most astute scientists, still have not come to understand completely. Does God reveal himself as Father, as Son, or Messiah, and as Ruach, as Spirit? Yes. Is there one and only one God? Yes. You say, well, Tim, that's... I, I don't understand that. You're right. None of us understand it completely. But we still know that it's true. And that's why Paul refers to the Incarnation as a mystery. How is it that God, the Son, could take on human flesh? It's beyond our understanding. Did he do that? Yes. The scriptures are very clear. So we read in chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, who, speaking of Yeshua, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Now, we... I've spent quite a few pages going over this because there's been a lot of controversy down through the uh, centuries over what it means he emptied himself. Emptied himself of what? Well, he emptied himself of this outward glory. When he came as a babe, he was viewed as any other person. No one looked at him and said, Oh, you're shining. No. The glory that he had, he left off and behind. He took the form of a bondservant. Was he a bondservant? Yes, he was a servant of the Father. But he was viewed by his contemporaries as someone who wasn't just a common, not-so-wealthy person. And was he truly man? Yes. He, was tr he is truly God, always has been. But he took upon himself the form of a man. Was made like us. Well, here are a few thoughts. Those who seek to diminish either the eternal, divine nature of Yeshua or his becoming man and thus possessing a true human nature are unwilling to accept the necessary mystery of the Incarnation. We don't have to be able to explain everything down to the nth degree in order to know it's true. And in the past I've given all kinds of illustrations of of astronomy and so forth, that even the best of astronomers and scientists and so forth are not sure how to fully explain certain phenomena in the outer space. In fact, just recently I heard that um, they were, I guess NASA or I'm not sure, sent out a satellite that had a telescope on it that would go beyond where we're able to reach with a telescope from the Earth. And the first thing that astonished them when they got the the uh, news back, you know, from that satellite, was that there was light out beyond where there doesn't seem to be any source of light. They can't explain it, but we can. The first thing that God made was light. Let there be light. You see, there's a great deal that we cannot fully explain but we can explain sufficiently to know it is true because it's in the Word of God and we accept it as such. Secondly, the point I make here is to pay the penalty of sin for all those he would save. It was necessary that he, that is Yeshua, would be a substitute in their place, dying for them, for the wages of sin is death. Such a death means eternal separation from God, being subjects of his infinite wrath as the necessary payment to satisfy his infinite holiness. There's only one way that payment could be made, because what was the penalty for sin? It was an infinite penalty. Only an infinite life. Only a life without beginning and without end. Fully 
completely, eternally, without sin, holy, 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 and yet one who took upon himself the form of a human man, the very humanity that we have, and died that death, an infinite payment, because the infinitely holy one died for sinners. In the incarnation of Yeshua, he always remained the infinitely holy one. He never gave that up. He couldn't. Infinitely holy. He had no sin. No sin nature. Which is, again, why the virgin birth is so uh, important. He's not related by way of birth to Adam. And that carried on by the Adam and, and men, according to the scriptures. So, he was infinitely holy. He had no beginning and has no end. As such, his death was an infinite payment for sin for all those the Father had given to him. And thus all those for whom he died will eternally be saved from the righteous wrath of God against sinners dwelling forever with him. Again, those who teach that someone who's truly saved can lose their salvation believes in salvation by works and the scriptures are totally against that. All that the Father has given me, Yeshua said, will come to me and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. Now, there are those who may fake uh, that they've really believed and they haven't. That's in God's hands. He's the judge of that. Their life will tell the tale. Because those who are truly born from above and have the Spirit of God dwelling within them will be urged more and more to become more and more separated unto God and from the world. That doesn't mean separated that we're not caring for the world, but it means our life is uh, giving out the truth of the fact by way of our actions that we have been born anew. Sanctification is the fruit, is the genuine fruit and the necessary fruit of justification. Everyone who is justified becomes more and more set apart, that is, sanctified under the Lord. So, what does it mean he emptied himself? The meaning of this phrase means something like he poured himself out. That is, he fully gave himself to effect redemption for those whom the Father had given to him. This language gives the picture of the infinite price he paid to save those for whom he died. He is taking the form of a bondservant in the same way that in his pre-existence with the Father, Yeshua possessed the divine status with all of its prerogatives, so in the Incarnation he assumed the status of a bondservant with all of its attendant attributes and characteristics. He submitted in every way to the Father. He was led by the Spirit of God. He is the perfect example of what we should strive to be. And then it says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This phrase shows the utter obedience of Yeshua to his Father, even an obedience that required an infinite reversal of his eternal state of glory, for he became the object of the Father's righteous wrath against sin and sinners. When we speak in terms of infinite, we must admit that this exceeds our ability to fully comprehend the magnitude of Yeshua's obedience to the Father and his love for all whom he would save. Uh, I chose uh, chapter 2, verses 9 through 11 as a highlight. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Yeshua every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Yeshua Messiah is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. He has a name above every name. This is the name Yeshua. Yeshua in the Hebrew, meaning Savior, for he will save Yoshia, his people, from their sins. He alone is able to save us from our sin. The fuller context of this passage makes it clear that every knee will bow, which is a quote from Isaiah 45:23, and it refers to everyone giving worship to Yeshua. 
Here, once again, we see the clear biblical teaching that Yeshua is one with the Father and the Spirit and is Lord. It's the word kurios. And kurios throughout the Septuagint was oftentimes used, uh, most often used, to translate Yotevavhe, affirming the mystery of God, who is three persons who are infinitely one. Those who deny the full eternal deity of Yeshua and thus also deny the biblical doctrine and mystery of the Trinity, likewise deny the ability of Yeshua to be the Savior of sinners. Now, I know that's a pretty strong statement, but I absolutely believe it's true. If anyone denies the deity of Yeshua, he has no ability to be Savior for a host of people that no one can number. And then, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The mystery of godliness, what does that mean? We should not expect that we can fully explain the incarnation of our Savior Yeshua, but we know it to be true, and we know it to be essential. So there is no other conclusion one can reach if one is willing to let the inspired text speak for itself, and it is this, Yeshua our Messiah and Lord, is yod He vav He, Adonai, in the flesh. This is why it was proper to worship Him. One is to worship the Lord God, and Him only shall we worship and serve. Verses 12-13, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Paul writes, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work of his good pleasure. The ongoing proof of having been granted true saving faith in Yeshua is that the believer continues to grow in sanctification, that is, having a life that more and more conforms to that which the Lord desires in thought, words, and actions. Now, I grant there are times when we take a couple of steps forward and three steps back, and we have to seek forgiveness, and we have to uh, commit ourselves once again not to uh, fall back into those things which God hates. But there is a constant moving forward, becoming more and more what God intends us to be. This process of growing in holiness and having a life that exemplifies that which pleases God is a cooperative effort between the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, and His work, and the believer's own heart desire and commitment to live righteously in this fallen world. The one thing that, again, is difficult for people to understand because we can't fully explain it. And that is, we are becoming more and more like Yeshua. And if someone has no desire to become more and more what Yeshua intends us to be, then there's a big question about whether they really truly have the Spirit of God in terms of being redeemed and born again. It is in constantly submitting one's will to do what pleases the Lord that the believer grows in sanctification unto him and thereby evidences the true character of one who has been born again unto eternal life. Such growth in one's life of faith is enabled and strengthened by regularly feeding upon the truth of the Scriptures, by communion with God through prayer, submitting to the leading of the Ruach HaKodesh, and committing oneself to regularly being part of a believing community, for this is where life-to-life interaction with other believers offers an atmosphere in which obedience to God's instructions can be practically applied by serving each other in accordance with God's commands in the Scriptures. Galatians 6.2 says what? Bear one another's burdens, and thereby fulfill the Torah of Messiah. Do we want to really be Torah observant, then it would not only be the Torah that is found in the books of Moses, but throughout all of the scriptures, including the Torah of Messiah. Verses 15 and 16 at the beginning, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. The true believer in Yeshua will live a life of ongoing sanctification, becoming more and more conformed to the will of God and to the image of Yeshua. I've already emphasized that. But this process of sanctification in the believer's life is not only for the believer's own benefit, 
but also enables the child of God to shine as a light for him and for the redemption he has procured for all who come to faith in him. In other words, this is how we become more and more the testimony of faith that he intends us to be. Thus, the primary means by which all who confess Yeshua to be their Savior are enabled to be true and valiant witnesses of his glory and his saving power is by holding fast the word of life. The scriptures contain the life-giving truth for the believer in Yeshua. 29 through 21, But I hope in the Lord Yeshua to send Timothy to you shortly, for I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Messiah Yeshua. Here once again we have the team concept. Paul was facing the same dilemma that we sometimes experience in the Messianic movement. There are some leaders and teachers who, perhaps with good intentions, strive to gain a following by initiating a Messianic congregation, yet in many cases they have never undergone the rigor of necessary biblical education themselves. They use shortcuts attempting to teach the meaning of the biblical text and pretending to work from the original languages. The result is often very discouraging, for they claim to find their novel teachings in the text of the scriptures when it is actually not there. In some cases, it appears that these teachers are more intent upon attracting a following than they are to honestly teach the scriptures and their applications to those who attend. As Paul puts it, they all seek after their own interests, not those of Messiah. In chapter 3, Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Now, he's using that word dogs just exactly as a pejorative term. Beware of the false circumcision. It is the enemy's modus operandi to seek to disrupt and discredit the true message of the gospel in Yeshua by using false teachers who offer an attractive message which, however, is false and which therefore undermines the true message of the gospel, which is salvation by faith in Yeshua alone. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. As in his epistle to the Galatians, so in Philippians, Paul is combating those who were teaching that Jewish status was the means by which a person was accepted by God. Thus they were teaching that becoming a proselyte through a man-made ritual, which included circumcision for the men, enables a Gentile to gain Jewish status and thus to be accepted within the covenant God made with Israel. So long as the proselyte continued to live out a Jewish life, so to speak, as prescribed by the rabbinic authorities, they were guaranteed to be accepted by God, so it was taught. But Paul labels this as having confidence in the flesh, one's physical lineage or imposed lineage by becoming a proselyte. But Paul makes it eminently clear that so-called ethnic status offers no saving reality in God's eyes. What is more, the scriptures are clear that eternal salvation comes only by faith in the person and work of Yeshua. Note what we have in Genesis 15:6. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And here's where he quotes Genesis 15:6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. The big question, and I'm going to just kind of go through this quickly. What is the it? Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it. Reckoned what? To him as righteousness. Well, it is clearly his faith. How do we know? Because in the Hebrew, the it is a feminine singular pronominal suffix. And in Hebrew, the whatever the it refers to has to agree with the gender and the number. What is that? Emunah, faith. It is the faith that God reckoned to him as righteousness. Faith in Yeshua. In other words, he reckoned that faith as laying hold of the true saving work of Yeshua. Paul emphasizes that eternal salvation is possible only by exercising faith in Yeshua in the following context, chapter 3, verse 9, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the Torah, but that which is through faith in Messiah, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And then verse 10 of chapter 3, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, what is the power of his resurrection? First, it is obvious that resurrection is necessary only when a death has occurred. Thus, the power of his resurrection is that by his resurrection, Yeshua proved himself to have the power over death. 
In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Secondly, if in his resurrection Yeshua proved beyond doubt that he had conquered death, this means that he also has the power to give all who are in him the power and strength necessary to overcome sin and to live eternally as trophies of his grace, for death entered into our world because of sin. So here's the question, how often do we set our minds upon the infinite gift God has given us through his death, resurrection, ascension, and intercession? Do we recognize what power God has granted us, both to overcome the pull of our sinful flesh and to hate the sinful pull of the world, as well as to live openly as witnesses of his love and grace? Verses 13 through 14, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Messiah Yeshua. Paul uses the metaphor of an Olympic foot race to describe the believer's life of faith in Yeshua. He states that he has not yet laid hold of it. What's that? Well, he's not finished the line. The resurrection and the reward at the finish line, right? He hasn't finished the race. Then he emphasizes what all athletes are trained to do in a race, not to look back or sideways, but always to keep their eye upon the finish line. Secondly, Paul teaches us not to dwell on our past failings or troubles, since God has enabled us to persevere through these trials. Thirdly, Paul admonishes us by his own example to press on toward the goal, the finish line, and the upward call of God in Messiah. That is, when Yeshua returns, and we will forever be with the Lord. What are the applications for our life of faith are clearly pictured here as the means of grace which God has given us in order to do well and to finish the race well. What is that? The scriptures, prayer, and the fellowship of local assembly. And then, in chapter uh, 3, verse 20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Messiah. We must constantly live as those who are promised an eternity with our Savior in all of his glory. Now, I know that's difficult. I know that at times we can't hardly even uh, think of that because we're so taken up with the woes of this world. But we must. We must concentrate and think about that. What will it be like to be with Yeshua forever in a place where there's no sin, where there's no sickness, no sorrow? and forever giving him glory. Such attention to the final goal of the race enables us all the more to live a valiant testimony for him in the time of our earthly dwelling. Paul does not teach us to be so heavenly-minded that we are of no earthly good. No, of course not. With our eyes upon the prize of eternal destiny, secured for us by Yeshua, we should be all the more ready, constantly, to bear witness of his grace and mercy to a watching world. Now, finally, in chapter 4. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. The source of our joy is God himself, that is, the saving work he has accomplished through Yeshua, and the inevitable reality that all whom he redeems are guaranteed eternity with him, since the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, has been given as the down payment, the Aravon, of our inheritance, and thus our eternity in the very presence of God is guaranteed. Here once again, this idea that one could truly be saved and then be rejected by God is impossible. What God puts a down payment on, and that's what Aravon means, um, then what he puts a down payment on, he finishes. He never leaves something undone that he has begun. What does Paul mean by teaching us that we should rejoice in the Lord always? Clearly, he does not mean that we never should experience sorrow, for the scriptures themselves instruct us to weep with those who weep in Romans 12.15. Thus, Paul is not using the term rejoice to simply describe the human emotion of happiness. No. Rather, what Paul enjoins upon us is the exercise of our faith, and thus the unmovable reality that God is in control and will bring about his sovereign will, including the means by which those who are his will persevere through whatever trials they may face and do so for his glory. Thus, to rejoice in the Lord always means to take courage as well as joy in knowing that even in the most difficult of times, God will sustain all who are his and enable them to persevere whatever life may bring and to do so for his glory. Soli Deo Gloria. May our whole life be for the glory of God. Verse 7 of chapter 4, And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Messiah Yeshua. The peace of God what is that? 
It is the shalom which he possesses and gifts to those who are his, as Paul teaches us in Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Yeshua Messiah. Never take for granted the grand opportunity we have at any moment to bow our heads, to enter prayer, and to speak with God and to know that he hears and that he cares. The peace which God promises to the believer in Yeshua experienced through a growing faith in who God is and what he has done to redeem those who are his is that which guards the heart and mind of the believer. For by faith we believe that God is able to do all that he has promised, regardless of what may be our current circumstances. Verse 8 of chapter 4. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Well, that's quite a list, isn't it? Paul's admonition here is an inspired reminder that we should guard ourselves from the constant desire of the unbelieving world to peddle godless ideas in order to gain more followers or customers and so forth. Surely we are not to isolate ourselves from the world, as has been the custom of some, quote, religious clerics, but rather we are to have the mind of Messiah by which we are enabled to accurately assess and avoid those things about which the enemy would want to change our perspective into accepting that which God hates. Paul gives us the antidote by which we are enabled to be in the world but not of the world, and this antidote is to fill our minds and our lives with what is honorable, righteous, pure, lovely, of good repute, that which is excellent and that which is worthy of praise. As he says in his epistle to the Romans, chapter 12, verse 2, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Verse 13 of chapter 4, Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, the all things is obviously those things given to Paul to do. And we may apply the same truth to our lives as well. This is because the phrase through him is actually in him in the Greek. Our union with the Messiah Yeshua. Right? Wasn't this Paul's favorite phrase? In Messiah. We are in Messiah. That we are in him is that that which enables us to carry out his will for us. For he would never lead us to do his bidding without also enabling us to complete what he has given us to do. So as believers in Yeshua grow in understanding and application of the scriptures, walking by the power of the Ruach and increasingly conforming their lives to that which pleases him, the child of God is strengthened to fulfill the very life for which he or she has been created, that is, to glorify God in all aspects of life. Verse 19 of chapter 4, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Messiah Yeshua. Having shown his great thankfulness to the Philippian community for sending that which he needed and helping him to maintain his life in the Roman prison in which he was incarcerated, Paul now encourages the Philippian believers that God would likewise supply all of their needs as they depend upon him and serve him. Note that Paul refers to God as my God. He apparently does so because it is well known that, being held in prison, he would not be able to help the Philippian community by being with them but that the God who has supplied his needs through their loving assistance will, in the same way, supply their needs as they serve him and trust him to meet their needs. Verse 20 of chapter 4. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. As we would expect, Paul comes to the conclusion of this great epistle by emphasizing once again that all we are and all we do or hope to do in this life, ought to be done with the ultimate goal of giving God the glory he so much deserves. And surely this characterized Paul's perspective, for he had learned to be content in whatever situation he found himself, as he writes to the Philippians in chapter 4, verse 11, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Oh, that ought to be the goal for us all to be able to say, Lord, even in the difficult things that come into life, I'm willing to trust you, and I'm willing to do what you intend me to do, and I want to be 
a bright light in this world for your grace, for your mercy, for your love, and for your care for all who are yours. And so I end, of course, with Romans 11.36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Thanks so much for being with us this year as we've gone through this. And I do look forward to being with you again as we start up another study in the not-so-distant future.